Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here. And today's a very special episode for you and for me personally. I first came across Dr. Brad Reedy's work after hearing him speak on Molly Carmel's podcast, What You Are Craving. I then read his book, The Audacity to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible Rotten Self, and it turned on a lot of lights for me. It helped me understand my needs, why they may not have been met, and offered some other pieces of understanding of the how and why my addiction may have developed. This made me want to dive deeper into his work and his book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle in the Road Home, which has had a profound impact on my parents in accepting their own part in my addiction, which was always put on me as something I did to them. And it helped them start their journey of their own work. By us all doing the work together, our relationship dynamics have improved immensely. Just another gift of recovery. So getting to interview Dr. Brad Reedy was a real honor for me. Dr. Reedy has a degree in family science and a PhD in marriage and family therapy. He has served on the board of the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs and the Utah Department of Child and Family Services. After years as a parent educator, having broadcast over 1,000 webinars on parent and family issues, Dr. Reedy released the book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. Using his own personal story and stories from thousands of clients, he shares his wisdom on how to think about parenting. Parents are asked to shift from relying on experts for advice to learning how to think about parenting questions by truly understanding themselves and doing their own work. In The Audacity to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible Rotten Self, Brad talks about how all our relationships are connected to the relationship we have with ourselves. He shows how the foundation for intimacy with partners, our ability to parent effectively, and the meaningfulness of our lives can be tied to how well we have unraveled our unique childhood history. The book is a simple but bold exploration into what makes us human and why happiness and connection are elusive for so many. Dr. Reedy's work is often seen as counterintuitive, but the reader often has a profound experience of being understood as they make their way through his work. Many readers say that just reading his work is like hearing something for the first time that you already knew but didn't have the words for. I had that experience. Dr. Reedy is also the Executive Clinical Director of Evoke Therapy Programs, an experience-based therapy program for adolescents, young adults, and families. His research and clinical experience includes parenting issues, attachment, adults and adolescents with substance abuse issues, developmental psychology, and children suffering with grief and loss. His podcast, Finding You, an Evoke Therapy podcast, is a recommended listen for all parents and all human beings with any issues at all. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. All right. We're so excited to have Dr. Brad Reedy with us here today. Thank you for being here. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with what something that Molly and I have noticed in the interaction with our clients, we frequently ask them about, you know, what are your needs and, you know, can you identify them? And they really find it challenging to articulate a response to this. So what causes us to lose like our innate understanding of our needs? And did we ever possess that knowledge? And how can we find it again? That's a wonderful series of questions, actually. And I'll start with the idea of did we ever possess it? I don't know that we could have articulated it when we were young, but it was a certain way of being in our family that where our needs seen, where our inner worlds felt and seen by our parents. And if that happens, if the parent is able to attune to the child because they're well-regulated and aware of themselves, the child develops a very rich inner world and they become very clear about their own needs. So in a lot of ways, this process of attachment is helping a child get clear and articulate 
and conscious of what's going on for them and what they need in life. So I don't know that we ever had it, but it was it would have developed naturally had we had a system, a context that was able to see us, to value us, to encourage us, to express ourselves, our feelings. And what happened, of course, because all of our parents, us as parents that are overwhelmed and struggling with our own issues of being human, um, the child learns very early how to keep the parent's attention, how not to frustrate the parent, how not to disappoint the parent or, or upset them in any way. So really quickly, we learn to discard the real self, the self that feels and thinks and experiences life on its own terms. And we learn, and again, there's no villain in this story. We just learn what makes the parents happy. And here's the key. If we can get that parent to smile, we have a better chance of them maintaining proximity to us, and then we will survive. It's really a survival instinct. If we do things, the, the child, specifically the young child, and sometimes us older children, interprets the frustrating, disappointed, upset, sad, anxious look on mom and dad's faces. Something's wrong with me. So that's how I think it goes. We During the natural course of development, if the parent is not capable of tuning into the child, the child just loses a sense of who they are, can't answer the simplest of questions in life in adulthood or adolescence or later on. Questions like, what do you want? How do you feel? What's going on for you? What do you need today? We don't develop that that poorly or anxiously attached style. So is this where we then show up maybe either for our parents or for other people as like being good or people pleasing? And so is this what you believe is, you know, we've learned this in childhood and then we, you know, mirror this in our relationships in adulthood? I love the simple sort of process of understanding that children who learn to please parents, where that's the task, especially when a parent, like I said, is overwhelmed either psychologically or just with stress or the demands of life. We learn to please parents. Then we learn to please people in general because the parent becomes the template for all of our other relationships. And then we learn to please children again, right? The pattern, the narcissistic pattern goes over and over again where the child, again, doesn't get attended to. So they learn to kind of outsource their sense of self, starting with parents, moving on to peers, and eventually back to children again. And that's how the cycle repeats itself over and over. So if we're recognizing that as adults, you know, now I'm thinking I'm a grown up. I think I'm 40. So let's hope if I'm recognizing that I'm still in this people pleasing pattern or I'm neglecting, maybe I don't have the words for like, I'm neglecting my needs or whatever. How do I get that? Like something's problematic. Something is happening. I'm not happy. My relationships aren't good. What do I do? to start to meet my needs? First of all, you screw up and fail radically at things, whatever it is, whether it be relationship, whether it be an escalating addiction, compulsive behavior, eating disorder, whatever it is that happens, there's usually some kind of system failure, destruction failures and so forth. And so, but I think what you're asking is how do you repair that? You repair it by, in, in essence, bringing in surrogates. Sometimes those surrogates can be fellow group members of your community, right, of, of your fellowship. They can be very mature friends. They, they can, to some degree, be family and, and partners, though we want to be careful not to place too much of a burden on, on people like that. But ultimately, in my way of thinking, it's the therapist relationship. Again, it can be a sponsor. It can be somebody outside of a, specifically a psychotherapist. But I love what Jamie Gill says when she said that the therapist becomes the parent that you never had and therapy becomes the childhood that you never had. And I'll give you one simple anecdote that kind of shines a light on this process that you're asking about. Many, many, many years ago, my mother was visiting. And I thought it would be fun if she just went to my weekly therapy session. I think she was visiting because of the birth of one of my children. So I thought, hey, we'll just do something fun and mom can come to therapy. Because as a teenager, we had been to therapy uh, years before. And I thought things worked out from that. So let's try it again. So I walked into therapy and casually just mentioned you know, growing up, mom, I felt the responsibility to take care of you. I was on my way to make another point. She got very upset, got very dysregulated, didn't even understand what I was talking about. My therapist excused me from the session. And I ended up staying out of the session the entire hour after. And I was frustrated and angry. Came back the next week. I thought about it all week. And I said to my therapist, you did to me what's been done my whole childhood. My mother's needs became the priority. I was neglected. You asked me to leave the session. And I'm just angry. And something happened that rarely happens. My therapist said, you're right, I'm sorry. And I'm so glad that you're telling me. And the fact that you would even take the risk to tell me something like that 
tells me that you trust me and that's an honor. So thank you and keep talking. Now that's 20 years ago or so. And I'm still going to that therapist because that's the way that it gets. All of a sudden I show up in the session as a child, in essence, as myself. And I tell her what I feel and what I think. And because she has the capacity to hold it, to be the bigger person, to take it, it's called containing an analysis, to contain me and to take in my thoughts and feelings and reactions, to metabolize them and to, to reflect back a sense that I'm okay. Over time, slowly, those attachment wounds, those attachment fractures get repaired in this new, what I'll call for the sake of today, a surrogate relationship with a psychotherapist. So it happens in the exact same way that the problem was created. It happens in relationship to somebody. Only this time, that person is more capable of what Daniel Siegel and others call helping you develop an earned attachment, which is something that happens later in life. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that, Brad. Thank you so much for that explanation. I know that you predominantly work with youth and, you know, addiction for sure. And is there some common themes that you see that these young people struggle with or that you observe maybe some of the reasons behind their struggles with addiction? You know, I love that you asked that question. Sometimes I think in psychotherapy, in any kind of therapy or addiction treatment, people think, well, I have to get past the resistance. If I get past the resistance, then I can get the message across that needs to be received, that needs to be developed by this person. But I think what we're talking about all the time is resistance. And I think resistance is just another word for shame. It's the sense of who I am is not okay. And I believe that every self-medicating behavior can basically be reduced to that sense that one has when one feels connected, when one feels safe, when one feels seen. So I think what we're searching for in all this self-medicating behavior, whether it be food or drugs or sex or, or work or even things that can have a real positive side to them, as, as food can, I think what happens is we're searching for that feeling of being seen as we are, being okay, being okay with who we are. So that's the theme that I'm always going back to is I talk to new therapists and they're like, how do you know what to say? And I said, well, I'm always open for a new story, but I have this idea about the story that happens in childhood with these children, these attachment fractures. And if I can find that, if I can find the crying, lonely, scared, worried child, then I can love them and I can heal them. I can help them heal by seeing them to repair what was going on for them. So I think it's so much the more the same than it is different from diagnosis to diagnosis, from symptom to symptom. I don't think the style of the way that someone self-medicates is the important distinguishing feature. Obviously, drugs have a certain set of circumstances that cause problems. Food eat, disordered eating has a certain set of problems and the list goes on and on. But what's more poor is this development of self that we're talking about from the very beginning, this development that who I am is okay because the other person, my therapist said to me one time when I was stumbling, this goes back to your question, Molly, when I was stumbling to confess something embarrassing, shameful I'd done that week. And I can't remember because all the dumb things that I've done together just kind of blur together over the years. But I was stumbling and she stopped me and she said, Brad, and I'm going to change the words a little bit because I don't know your audience as well as mine. She said to me, I'm just going to pause you right here and tell you, if you came in here and telling me that you were having sex with a chicken, I would assume that you had a good reason and I would just want to understand why. And again, that's a moment when I thought I've never been in a room like this in my entire life. That's the kind of what, Fred, what Carl Rogers called unconditional positive regard that is required to do this kind of work that I'm describing. So speaking of that, you know, we hear a lot from our clients, you know, so we work at that intersection of addiction and disordered eating often then it shows up as food addiction, but all kinds of different, you know, flavors, so to speak. And we encounter individuals who talk a lot about self-sabotage, right? Like, oh, I'm, you know, I just go ahead and sabotage myself or everything was going just fine. And I have a really strong opinion about this idea of self-sabotage, but I'm more interested in what you have to say about self-sabotage and, what, you know, if there's anything that you might be willing to share with our audience who thinks, you know, that this is what's actually happening for them? Or is it something more along these lines of these fractures that continue to happen? One of my favorite quotes of all time from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow says, if we could read the secret histories of our enemies, we would find in every man's story suffering sufficient to disarm all hostility. I believe if you can find the story, 
it all makes sense. There's no such thing as self-sabotage in my book. Yes, on one level of observation, it looks like self-sabotage, but it's protecting something else there. I dropped out of high school as a 16-year-old, and it wasn't because I couldn't do the work or I had a learning difference. It was because I was afraid of failing. And by failing, I meant getting a B plus. I was afraid of not being everything that I had been told that I was as a child, all this potential and that I had a gifted academic ability. So my self-sabotage of failing out of school was protecting me from trying and failing, right? I took back control, the sense of powerlessness that one has in childhood. I took back control by sinking my own boat. So when somebody says self-sabotage, and I don't know if this is different than the way you're thinking of challenging the idea, Molly, my thought is, okay, I, I can see on one level, you were almost to the finish line and you shot yourself in the foot, but what did that serve? What were you protecting? What does this quote unquote irrational behavior, if we dig a little bit deeper, what does it tell us about you that you can't, what untold story is there? So I just don't use that phrase. I don't like that phrase because I found that in my own life and in the lives of my clients with some persistent digging, we find a place in a context where everything they do makes perfect sense. I think we would agree with that. You know, like that's usually our pushback is like, wow, like this is a matter of safety. And like, what's the information? Like, what is this really about? Because much like you said, you know, it doesn't really matter how people are self-medicating or what like the behaviors are, like these diagnoses, like, again, there's just like different flavors, but it all kind of comes back to these root issues. And when safety is a major factor in all of this, that behavior is trying to tell us something. Yeah, yeah. It's serving some... I would argue divine purpose. My daughter tells a wonderful story where she's a gifted therapist herself and she was co-facilitating where somebody not was not in acute circumstances with their disordered eating, but that was their history. That was a part of their pattern. And when she was running an intensive with this individual, a group of folks, the natural inclination from the other therapists and from the others was to talk about all the negative ways that this eating disorder was hurting her life, to just kind of list this. My daughter asked for a timeout, pulled everybody aside and said, how about if we write a love letter to the disorder? How about if we talk about how it has served? How about if we talk about how it has been a gift in some ways? Which, of course, they did. And this woman, as you would expect, felt the defense come down. She felt seen. She felt heard. She felt loved. And she started to have love for herself. And she stopped seeing her symptoms as these nefarious enemies in her life. But these messengers, right? The demons are not our enemies. They are messengers. It is our job to listen to what they have to tell us that we can't otherwise hear. Yes. And to make friends with our shadow side, because there is a part of it that just needs to be seen and heard. And I think this runs into my next question is why in the field of substance use and addiction is compassion seen as permission? Like we often find in our groups, we are both trained in self-compassion and we try to mirror that language to our clients. We are harm reduction clinicians and then we are brought with, you know, this is a deadly disease and you're not taking it seriously and your messaging could kill someone. So what are some of your thoughts on that? My religion is Star Wars. That's my religion. And I think Yoda and then the folks that taught there understood what it was, is, is if you're afraid and you feed that fear and that's what drives you, fear leads to control. Fear leads, I mean... Darth Vader didn't think he was the problem. He thought he was the solution. And where did that idea came from? He lost his mother, lost his father, uh, was basically an orphan, was losing the love of his wife, his life, and, and potentially the children that she was pregnant with. And his solution was, I'm going to control everything. So I think it asks us to surrender. It asks us to surrender to love. I always used to use the example, if you know when Darth Vader was under that stress when his wife was sick, that's the thing that lured him to the dark side. He got seduced by the idea, by the emperor, which is just a metaphor for those parts of our philosophy and our culture that tell us that we can prevent pain and suffering. He got seduced by that, and so he wanted to stop her from dying. I contrast that with Yoda, for example, when he found out that all of the young Jedi children had been killed. And I asked people, I said, what did Yoda do with that information? And people usually don't remember the moment because it was so subtle. And my reminder to them is he cried. And so I think what happens is we get seduced by the dark side. We try to fend off fear with more fear, with more control, with more intensity. We make it high stakes. We threaten. We, we actually prescribe the poison instead of the cure because our fear 
overwhelms us. And the solution is love, surrender, radical acceptance, faith, whatever you call it. It's this idea that we will be okay, which, by the way, is a function of a secure attachment. If I have a secure attachment, I have more access to love because I'm not afraid. You know, the bird that stands on the end of a thin branch isn't confident because it, it trusts the branch. It's confident because it trusts its wings. And that's the best way to describe a secure attachment. So if you weren't seen and heard, if you don't have the secure attachment, you walk around being driven by and fueled by fear, which leads you to try to control things, which creates this false dichotomy that you just said, where people think that when we embrace the defense, when we honor the defense, when we understand the fear and give it grace, they were taught from childhood that you're just causing all kinds of risks, that the person has to be terrified into compliance. We, and I think you nailed it. Like I was like getting emotional listening to you answer the question because that is our lived experience as clinicians. So I'm a dual licensed mental health and addiction provider. And my way has always been this like compassionate way, this quote unquote softer way. And I, you know, growing up again, quote unquote, you guys can't see us, right? Like, so growing up in the field, it was very clear that there was what we would call like old school. So like very rooted in 12 step, very rooted in, you know, moral based kind of intervention. And then there were like the new school kids, you know, like we were coming along going, I'm sure that that's really a thing that's working. Or maybe it works for some people, but it doesn't work for all people. And so, you know, that is our approach has been, as Clarissa described, more of this middle way. Then we have colleagues locally, internationally, whatever, that really have some kind of, I don't know, big opinion about it. And so I was just wondering if you've run into that. And if so, how have you kind of like found your way to like stay true to you? And you know what I mean? And just like stand in it because I know it. I mean, I know how I feel when I'm feeling like I'm being, you know, maybe attacked is too strong of a word, but certainly questioned. You know, one of my, I, I love myth and story. So I draw upon that a lot. And one of my favorite stories is the story of Les Mis, the musical based on Victor Hugo's book. And I think it's a great illustration of what happens when Jean Valjean escapes being under the supervision of his probation officer, I suppose is what it is. And he and he, he resides with the bishop for one evening. This, this church member brings him in. And in the middle of the night, out of fear, he hits the church bishop over the head, steals the silver, and then is later caught that day. The police bring him back to the bishop and said, we found this man with all this silver just, you know, leaving your property. And, and we assume that he's stolen from you. We just want to check it to confirm it with you so we can arrest him. And the bishop, of course, famously said to Jean Valjean, you fool, you forgot the candlesticks. You left without taking the most expensive part. The police excused themselves and apologized for the misunderstanding. And then the bishop just said, now that you're forgiven, go and pay it forward. And I think What's missing from people often is they haven't come to accept themselves. They haven't come to love themselves. They haven't, maybe they think they haven't been somebody who needed that kind of forgiveness and grace that those of us who have struggled have, have realized that we need to experience, right? If you've screwed up enough, if you've hurt enough people, if you've made enough mistakes and you're honest with yourself, you realize that the only thing that welcomes you into the search is that grace, that charity, that forgiveness. And so I think once you experience it, you just want to give it to everybody else. So when I get that, feedback that you're describing and I get it all I get it from therapists that I hire and that I like right you know I get it from everybody I just try to help them through my supervision heal their wounded child and heal the part of them that is exiled the part of them that feels unwelcome and understand this is how they've coped this is how they've operated so I think that opinion I'm like you if being a, a drill sergeant works for you and that heals you your soul and you stay sober or you're living a healthy life in whatever way that means to you, great, fantastic. My experience is that love is better, that compassion is better, that grace is better, that that goes deeper than just treating the symptom and addresses the spiritual, psychological, emotional wound that is much deeper than the symptoms than the symptoms are. So that's kind of the way that I see it. It's just another example of wounding in our, and, and a lot of therapists and a lot of academics don't go to therapy or they don't end up in addiction and they end up in a 12-step group. And so they don't experience what those of us who have, have experienced. Yeah, thank you for that. I really appreciate that perspective. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. 
We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts on shame, the connection between shame and addiction, particularly in the context of food addiction and eating disorders, because we have this conversation all the time, Molly and I, we used to work with alcohol and drugs, and then we moved to the food addiction space and eating disorders. And there seems to be a deeper level of shame associated with these disorders. It feels heavier. It feels more profound. And I've often wondered if this was stemmed from the fact that we can say, oh, when I'm you know, under the influence of alcohol and drugs, I'm impaired. So I can disassociate from that behavior. Like it's, it, I don't own that behavior. And people, I don't think, feel that level of impairment when it comes to food. And they therefore take it on as more of like a willed moral choice. But I was really curious about your perspective on this. Well, you know, the quote, probably most people that are listening, you've heard it, Rumi talks about where he says, I'll be on wrongdoing and rightdoing. There's a field and I will meet you there. I think there's this construct, this moral construct that is the problem. I mean, the enlightened ones, they go past right and wrong. They go past good and bad. Ram Dass, one of my favorite quotes is, he says, people try to, to counteract the I am bad with I am good, or I am not lovable with I am lovable. But he said, that still keeps you in a world of polarities. The fact is, you do wonderful things, you do horrible things. And you are. I am. I am, I am, I am, he says. And so, I think shame is the primary disorder, if you will. And so I think the people that end up in addictive patterns, self-medicating patterns that become problematic, have more of it. And then you would ask, well, did that come from their environment? Did they have a, an inherently more shameful environment? Or was it their nervous system that was more sensitive? I, I believe anytime anybody answers that question with one absolute, they've missed the point. The fact of the matter is every human being is born with a nervous system that is sensitive at various levels. That's just, it's nonsensical to think otherwise, that there aren't different nervous systems with different levels of sensitivity and perceptibility and so forth. And then you have the environment, whatever the environment is, and it has its say with the child and the development and where that intersects, you become shame-based or not. I think I love what Harriet Lerner said. I was listening to her talk at a conference and the conference was on shame. She gave this wonderful hour and a half talk on shame. And the facilitator, he thought in between the, the two or three talks that were given that day that he would ask a question from the audience. And the first question that he asked to, to Harriet Lerner, she wrote the book, my favorite book on boundaries called The Dance of Anger. He said to her, specifically, how do you deal with shame in therapy? And she paused for a moment. She's very thoughtful in her answers. And she says, I think you're just asking me how I do therapy, because that's all it is. If there was no shame, we would just be teachers. If there was no fear and shame, which are kind of woven together, we would just tell people things and we would just learn things. It would just be about replacing ignorance with, with knowledge, but it's much deeper than that. All of this shame stuff is, and by the way, for me, shame and guilt are overlapping. I know there's this popular shame is feeling bad for 
who you are and guilt is feeling bad for what you do. But I think it's just a level of probably degrees because most parents that I work with say, I knew what to do in this situation and I just didn't do it. And when I say why, they say, I felt guilty. So I teach people, both therapists and clients, you have to be willing to feel guilt to do the right thing. You have to grapple with guilt because if you don't, you're going to, because of your conditioning, you're going to do the wrong thing to feel better. And the right thing is going to make you feel more guilty. So I think it's, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but it's almost all shame. That's almost all we're dealing with is a person's experience that who they are is not okay. Of course, that suggests my primary thesis in therapy, which is the goal of psychotherapy is to become who you are again, or maybe for the first time. I think that's so powerful. You know, when, when we think about how you just frame that, you know, like that's what therapy is, is like that level of shame. And I thank you. I just don't know that I've ever heard it described like that before. And it just, it opens up. It just like, it lands for me so much. And I was thinking, you know, or wondering as you were kind of describing that, you know, does that then with therapy or doing therapy, and like you said, like it all kind of revolves around shame, does it then go back to what you were earlier saying? You know, essentially as therapists, we are a de facto parent or some role, and then we have this therapeutic relationship. I mean, and that's then how we heal the shame. Yeah. And that's why to me, I don't care if your model is DBT, CBT, EMDR, brain spotting, the list goes on. Most of those are American-based which Americans are very, very inclined to look for very simple solutions, right, to to problems. But no matter what the model is, you have to understand your relationship with yourself versus a psychotherapist or helper. And if that relationship isn't clear, then that's going to be reflected in your client. You're going to find them to be frustrating or disappointing or upsetting. A lot of parents, excuse me, a lot of, that's a good slip. A lot of therapists take great pride in confronting defenses. They love to call people on rationalizing and justifying. And what I have pointed out is, remember, a defense, this is so simple and beautiful. It's not my idea, so I'm just borrowing it from the masters. A defense is something that we put to protect ourselves against the threat. It's all it is. And what's the threat? The threat is, I'm not lovable. I'm not okay. So instead of confronting somebody's justification, the goal is to be with that person in a way that they don't feel the threat. And over time, You know, I have clients confess things to me over time that I may have even suspected earlier, right? I got a feeling or a vibe that something was happening, but they'll confess it to me, which I praise them at the courage that it must take because what they're expecting me to do is the same thing that's been done in their context, which is to criticize, to give them some sort of I told you so message or you knew better message, some shameful message, instead of saying, you know what? That's how we are sometimes, aren't we, right? You walk into a 12-step group, you confess the most horrific acts, And some old timer, some wise old timer puts their arm around you and says, you're in the right place. You're welcome here. And that's what heals. And so we have to not just say different and know different and study different and have techniques. I think all of those are the easy parts of psychotherapy. We have to be different than the original context. Remember when the child is little and they're walking away and they trip and fall, they look back at the parents to find out how they feel. And that's what psychotherapy is. And so when we show compassion and love for the little child in front of us, no matter how wrinkled or old or or how much hair is missing from their balding head, when we look at them with that same kind of compassion, they start to look at themselves that way. And they don't get worse. They get better because these symptoms aren't a sign of loving yourself too much, right? These symptoms are a sign of something that's broken, not feeling an absolute, we fear that loving ourselves, like you said earlier, is going to lead to hedonism and anarchy. And it's a lie. It is a lie. It starts off that way a little bit at first. It gets a little bit crazy at first when the rules start to go away. But on the other side of that experience of grace and unconditional love, all you want to do is give it away. You want to give people the exact same experience you have, which is I'm sure why the three of us are talking to each other today is because we have that experience on both ends of it. Mm, I love that. Thanks, Brad. I'm wondering, because I know I experienced this with my clients and I've experienced it myself in my own personal life, specifically with my parents, that it's really hard to navigate the world when we are doing our own work and we are growing and we are evolving and all of the individuals around us are oblivious to maybe what their work is. And I know it's not our purpose to point that out to them. But how can we navigate 
this new world for a lot of people who are just newly in recovery and starting to have insights and awareness and learn new communication styles. How do we navigate our relationships with people who aren't willing to do their own work? It's hard. I mean, we do it patiently, ideally. You know, I don't give assignments to my clients in my individual psychotherapy because I don't want them to not complete it, to feel ashamed of it, and to have that be any barrier to them coming back, right? I might say, hey, I read this book. You may or may not like it. I'm not going to follow up on it. That's just my style with the kind of clientele that I work with, and I've found success with it. But I'll take it back to attachment, something I realized a long time ago. If you get seen by somebody, you don't spend your entire life trying to be seen by everybody. We don't need to be seen by everybody. That is, again, a sign of an insecure attachment, an attachment fracture. Attachment can become a permanent sense of I am okay. And I think that takes a lot of time working one-on-one with a client, even if they've been to residential treatment of some kind, to develop this sense of self so that when they go back out into the world and they set a healthy boundary with their mother, right? They say something assertive in terms of their feelings with their father, and both of those interactions go horribly. But if they've developed it over time enough of a sense of self, they see their mother and they see their father, and they don't see it as something about them, a reflection of them. So again, it's earned attachment. You spend enough time with somebody where you realize you're okay, and then the pushback, the homeostatic, get back to the way things were and don't change, that energy loses its power over time. But man, in my experience, it takes a long time. And I'll let you know when I get to the end. I'll let you know when I arrive. I will send you an email back. I have your email addresses. I'll say, I've arrived. I want to tell you what it looks like from here on top of the mountain. But it's a lifelong process, right? You're constantly, the goal is to be a human, not to be good or done or perfect. And humans are fallible and imperfect and always evolving and always shedding their skin and becoming a new person. And so it just takes a long time to have enough of a self that those storms of the people around you and what they think and how they react have less and less and less effect towards you, of you over time. But that takes a long time. And I'm still working on it. Yeah. I mean, I think that really speaks to the nature of relationship, right? It is so dynamic and we're always hopefully growing, changing, evolving, which means that dynamic is always shifting. And as I've gone through my therapy process and started, I don't know, I'm like in this new chapter, Clarissa and I were literally just chatting right before you met with us, Brad. You know, like I'm kind of like in this new chapter where I didn't have the luxury of being an actual child. Like I didn't get to explore. I didn't get to play. Like, in fact, those things like drive me insane. And I have young children and it drives me insane. They like want to play games and they want to play this. And like, I have like the attention span of like five minutes, but I'm starting to be in this space, this chapter of my life where I am starting to figure out who I am or I'm wanting to explore these different things. And it is difficult because people who've known me, right. They're like, who is this new person? And so it's, it's starting to butt up against these expectations or this perception that they have of me. And I have to remind myself, it's not my responsibility to live up to that in their head, you know? And I think that's a really important piece to what you were just saying that like, we're not meant to be perfect and done. And and any of these things we're meant to have these experiences and take that information in and grow and change. And, you know, I don't know, just like take in the world in such a different way. And and hopefully they come along with us. And if they don't, they don't. And I think that's another piece that I've kind of learned along the way is I really have to take a step back and say, okay, is this relationship worth working on, right? Like, is it worth having many conversations, many difficult conversations often in order to like keep this thing going? Or is this a person that I can say, yeah, you were good for a while or you were meant to be in my life for a short period of time, but that's over now and that's fine. And I'm moving forward. And I think that's part of this shame process too. I don't know. I mean, would you agree or do you have different thoughts on that? You'll find this. I think this is kind of amazing. I went to an ACOA meeting when I was a teenager and I guess it was for teens because I wasn't an adult. That stands for, for those of your audience that don't know, adult children of alcoholics. And my parents weren't overt alcoholics. There was no, we never... Even to this day, I don't I don't look back and think alcohol was the problem. I think it was emotional immaturity and alcohol was just one of the many symptoms that we could have pointed to that didn't stand out on its own. But I was in this adult children of an alcoholic's room one time and there were some slogans on, on the wall and, and some signs about if you are or aren't a, an adult child of an alcoholic or suffering. And one of them was that adult children of alcoholics have this intense loyalty that they will give even when it's not deserved. 
And I, I think that part of that is, you know, I wrote this in my book, The Three Keys to Enlightenment. You have to die over and over again. And what I mean by that is old ideas, old contexts, meaning old people in the 12-step community, they talk about changing your playground and your playmates. We have so much guilt if we grew up in a family where you gave loyalty no matter what to people, even when they were sick, that we feel like no matter what we do, it's wrong. But it is, if you're the same person today that you are 10 years from now, I think you've wasted 10 years, right? If you're the same person today that you were 10 years ago, when my adult children ask me about looking for a partner, I say, look for somebody who's willing to die. Look for somebody who's willing to confront their darkness and to let it go over time. Because no matter how much you love each other at 29 years old, at 31 years old, that's, a, that's my two oldest children, They're, you both are going to be different people in 10 years if everything goes well, perfectly well. And do you have somebody that's willing to continue to slough off the old skin, to relearn life again, over and over again? So I think what you're describing is common. I think it's a subtle, nuanced version of a higher level of your therapeutic work. And it is inevitable. You have to die. So for something new to be born, some part of you has to die over and over and over again. And that is painful grief work. That is difficult, courageous work to do. It's true for all of us. It's true for all of us, I think. So if there is like certain family members who obviously we need to spend time with and, you know, often we hear, oh, you just got to practice acceptance that this is just who they are. And that's, you know, it's your expectations of them that's hurting you. What are your thoughts on that? Like, can we, like, obviously boundaries need to be in play, but, you know, how do we navigate those? I'll just say it this way. I'm a father. I have four children. 31 is my oldest and my youngest is 16. I have two in the middle. And if my children said to me, communicated to me in any way that being around me was toxic for them, and they need to take some space from me, they would have my support 10 out of 10 times, right? Like I wouldn't stop them. But guess what happens when you support somebody in a project like that? They don't want to go away. So I was just dealing with a client today who was trying to deal with a social relationship and set a boundary. And they got all kinds of guilt and shame back because of the boundary that they were trying to set and they were being disloyal and and the list went on. And I just said, that person's just compromised. A healthy person that's taking care of themselves will let you go. And like I said with my children, my children aren't going anywhere. They can if they want to. And I will take care of myself. My ego is my responsibility. My serenity is my responsibility. You get to take care of yourself. But why would you leave somebody who loves you that much? You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said, we should love the other person in such a way that they feel free. That's what I'm describing. So when Freud said that the goal of psychotherapy was to overcome and get rid of unconscious obligations... He was talking about this idea that there's no should or need to in my life with my love. There's my love. There's my boundaries for myself, right? My own self-love is my boundaries for myself. But past that, you get to come and go as you please. And you hang around somebody like that, you don't want to go anywhere. That's the place to be. Somebody that will let you leave and come back a bigger person, hang around that person as much as you can because then you get to be yourself in relationship and there's nothing better than getting to be yourself in relationship. That is the penultimate life experience. That's what happened. I was married. I'm married. We were separated for a year and a half. We did our work and I came back telling the truth more about what I thought and felt and needed, which I was not, I've not been very good at in my life. And my wife did her work and it's her own work. But part of it was giving me more space to be myself. And I fell in love with her again. I'd fallen out of love with her. In my mind, she looked different. Even though she hadn't changed the way she looked, I was more attracted to her because, not because, she had changed, but because I got to be me. And when you get to be you, you love everything. You love your life and the people in it. So I know you have so many tools. I loved your book, The Audacity to Be You. And in that book, you have some great tools. But one of the things I have noticed in most of the individuals we work with is that we're never taught younger how to communicate. And I think this is really a missed skill. And we often learn our communication patterns from our parents. And of all the tools in your book, I loved the ask or state the intention tool. And I'm wondering if you can describe to our audience why it's so effective and how to use it. Yeah, I say in the book that I think this tool, I think it's tool number three of the eight that I presented in that chapter, that this is the one tool that's the most underutilized tool out there for communication. It's simply this. If you're on what I will all call the center part of communication, if I'm the one sharing with you, 
feelings, anger, sadness, hurt, whatever it is. What do I want from you? And if I can state that on the front end, like, hey, if I say, Clarissa, I want to talk to you about something that happened during the podcast interview. Do you have the ability to listen? Can you just hear me? Now I've set us both up for success. Now, if you start to defend yourself or argue or point out how I was wrong, I said, hey, can you remember I asked just to be heard? And if you can't do that, that's your right also, right? So you're set up for success. And I've had to learn as a husband and a father, I've had to learn this painful lesson. I have to say no when I'm not capable, when I'm not in the space to hear you because of my shame and my guilt about what I should be able to do. I should be able to listen to the people that I love and whatever they're feeling. I should be able to listen to their anger and their hurt directed toward me. But I've realized since I'm a human, I can't. So then I have to say no. And those kinds of discussions just don't happen, right? Now, if you're on the other end, the receiving end, this happens with my children a lot, especially my older children, all of my children, actually. They'll share something with me and I will go into my instinctual I don't want my child to feel pain. I have a solution for this. I've dealt with something just like this. I can give you all of the answers, but I pause because I hear that and recognize that that template. And I say, what would you like from me? You want me to just hear you? I say this to clients all the time. You want me to just hear you? Or do you want, is this a problem solving moment? And then everybody's just set up for success. And I just don't think that we know what's going on because our nervous systems are so sensitized that it happens so quickly and invisibly, we don't pause enough to say, what do I need from you as you being my listener? And what do you need from me when I'm on that? And I think a lot of couples could recognize if we could establish those parameters in the early parts of difficult discussions, things would go a lot better, a lot more often. Such a great tool. And I love the way that you describe it and lay it out for us, because I agree when we can just hear what's actually being said. Instead of letting, you know, and instead of the defenses immediately going up and just shutting down and feeling rejected and abandoned and all of those things that can come along with it. If we can somehow just hit the pause button and be present and just hear, it's amazing what can just shift for sure. And I'm, and as you were saying that and talking about your children, I too am a parent. Like I was saying, I've got two girls, 11 and eight. And I would say it has been the literally most challenging thing in my life because it has, even though I was in therapy for years before I ever had babies, it has just shown a spotlight on those areas, right? That just like those wounds that are still there. And I think about you working with adults, parents (laughs) and their children at times, maybe not necessarily the same parent child combination, but you know, like when you see children and, and maybe they're I don't know, maybe they're lying, maybe they're cheating in school, maybe they're using screens, whatever it might be. And the parent is framing it as, you know, maybe quote unquote bad behavior. Like, how do you address that? I know this sounds simple. I think I just teach them that every bad behavior serves a purpose. Every pathological, symptomatic, diagnosable issue serves a deeper spiritual purpose. That it's a it's a, a way to kind of give temporary relief to a deeper wound. And so part of the way that I think I'm able to teach that is because I do it with them. I say this to my therapists all the time who work with parents in parent therapy and family therapy or in parent coaching. I say, look, remember that the parent before you is a wounded, scared child too. They're not healed. So you can't just start beating them over the head by you got to go to do your work. You've got to get into therapy or go to a program or go to, you have to love them the same way. Therapy is a slow process, and the master therapist prides themselves on what they don't say, not on what they do say. So my job is to see it all, like you're describing. I might be able to see this, but my job is to help. I guess the answer I've come to is I have to help the parent heal the thing that is hurt and broken and wounded in them, where they just can't see their child, their child as the struggling, scared, powerless child that they are, and that this somehow serves some purpose for the child. And once you, you know, the minute you shift things to compassion, not only are you on the road to healing, but that is the healing, right? Safety in therapy is not the precursor that we try to accomplish to get to therapy. Safety is the treatment. Safety is the treatment, both with the parent and with the child, with the family, with the couple, with everybody. So it's healing and listening. And then once the defenses are lowered, once the person feels safe, then you teach them something about psychology or child development that helps them to see it through a different lens. And they'll go back to it next week. But again, that's because they're not coming to you out of ignorance. They're coming to you 
like everybody does in therapy out of their own wounding. So then you help them to heal over and over again in your patient. And we like to, in our field, sometimes bent and talk about parents and how much they screw up their children. But the fact of the matter is every parent dents their child. Every parent dents their child. The older I get, the more I realize how and how much I've dented my children. And that is that doesn't seem to be going away. It just seems to be that I can more specifically identify the subtleties and the nuances of my particular kind of denting than I could when I was younger. And I thought it was only defined by the big T traumas. So I feel like through this whole conversation, you have sold the value of therapy very well. But I also know that there are still a lot of people who are resistant or have these ideas about who goes to therapy or what that means about them. And so to those people, how could you encourage them to take the risk? Two or three-parter. My first thought is you probably have a good reason for not wanting to go to therapy. I imagine you've had some bad experiences or you assume therapy is going to be like other adults in your life, especially when you were younger, when you were struggling with a problem. You expect the same experience. So I really validate it. And I let people show up. I've let people show up where they won't look at me or they just want to text me instead of talk even in session. I've let people who want to sit on a chair higher. It doesn't matter. I don't care because I'm the adult in this room, right? So you let them leave. Another thing that I do that helps them is I model it for them by saying, I am, I have a PhD. I've been practicing this for a long time. I'm just finishing my third book, working on my fourth, which is a manual about how to do therapy. And I screw up all the time. I screw up all the time. And then they start to feel like, well, some rigid people will say, well, how can I get help from you then if you're screwed up, right? That, that's their thinking. But a lot of them are like, I feel safe and I don't feel judged. And I don't feel like you're up there and I'm down here. I feel like we're on this journey together. And so my first thought is I let them leave. I understand that they have a good reason for not wanting to come to therapy. And then I start trying to show them that there's a different kind of therapy out there, that there's a kind of therapy out there that isn't about right and wrong and getting it all figured out real quickly and just applying skills and tools. But there's a therapy that addresses what I think is really a spiritual issue. Like James Hollis, one of my favorite writers, said that neuroses is the result of accepting the wrong answers for life's most important question. So I just try to be with them wherever they're at. I take resistance and I honor it. And when you honor resistance, people feel safe. Even though it feels like you're going to lose them, you're honoring the wound, you're honoring the trauma, you're not trying to force them to fit your idea, your model, your timeline. And in that act, you are creating an earned attachment. So if I'm somebody new to exploring therapy, how do I know when I start to feel safe? Is there a certain amount of sessions? Like if I am just new to this, what lets me know that maybe this is my person? I think the biggest trick is when and if you are able to confront your therapist on something they did that you didn't like. I think that's the golden moment for both. And the correct answer, the, the healthy, adequate, mature answer from the therapist is, thank you for telling me. I'm glad you said something. That must have been scary for you. The inadequate therapist will say, well, that's not what I meant. I think that might be your addiction talking. I think you've misunderstood me. That's probably your narcissism. That sounds like you're seeing your mother in me or whatever, right? They make the client the issue, whereas a big person doesn't care. The ego is at that point, at that moment, at least, the ego is dead at that moment. And they say, bring it to me. Tell me all of your anger toward me, your hurt. Tell me how he disappointed you. Thank you so much. So I think that's the magic trick is you tell your therapist something that is hard, might be hard for a person to hear. And if they react adequately as an adult, you know, you have a good one. If they react by making you the problem, making your very complaint evidence of something something that's gone awry in you or something that's wrong with you, you have a child in front of you and you need to find a new therapist. I mean, you can confront them again and tell them again, but most likely if that's their initial response to a client, I mean, just think about that. That's the golden moment when the child gets to say, I love when clients say to me, I know this isn't, I know this isn't right, or I know I should be grateful because I'm a white male and I have privilege, but I'm depressed or I'm angry, or I know I have a lot of money and this is you know, first world problems. But what they're saying is they've been gaslit their whole life. So the minute that you have the opportunity to hear somebody say something that they should or shouldn't say from their background, that's the moment when you have to do 
when you have the opportunity to do something different and make a real change. Again, I could cry just listening to your answer because I agree wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I can't tell you how many times. I mean, again, I've been in therapy for like 20 years at this point. I've had a few therapists in my day. And some of them I had to fire, you know, because they said really awful things. And when I tried my hardest at my lowest to confront it, they wouldn't hear it. And I was like, why would I do this? This is exactly why I'm coming to therapy because that was my life story, you know? So, but when you were talking, it reminded me, you know, speaking of quotes, you know, to quote people, there's this quote from Edgar Allan Poe. I think it is anyways. He, people have been attributing it to him where he says, tell me every terrible thing you've ever did and let me love you anyway. And that is like, I feel like that's the epitome of a therapist, you know, or at least for me, like, that's like what I live. Like, tell me every terrible thing that you've ever done and let me show you that I can still love you. And just you describing everything you just said made me think of that. So I appreciate that. Thank you. So you have written a few books. And first of all, I love the journey of the heroic parent. And I gave it to my parents and they were like, yes, look, we are heroes because we dealt with your addiction. And then they read it and they were like, "Uh oh, (laughs) I wonder if you did that on purpose. I know you didn't, but it was kind of magical the way it all happened. You also wrote The Audacity to Be You. You have an amazing podcast. When I'm like trying to think about something differently, I will look up your podcast and see if you've done a topic on it and then listen to it. So can you share with our listeners, where is the best place for them to find more about you and what you do? The podcast is a great, really great place to start. Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast is the name of it. It's on any podcast platform. But you can Google me. There's a few places. My social media is my kind of therapy diary. So my Instagram account, Dr. Brad Reedy, is my, it's, you know, at the end of the day, I share things that I learned that day from my clients that I've learned from my own work that day. Of course, the two books, evoketherapy.com is the program I run. We run family intensives, couples intensives, individual intensives, and we'll learn therapy programs for young people. So that's another place to go. And then, of course, drbradreedy.com. So you can get to me a lot of different ways. But the podcast is my favorite thing to offer because, like you said, I didn't invent what I'm teaching. I just want to be clear about that. I just have curated it. And it is from the masters. It's not from modern. Most of it's not modern people because, you know, Jung and Freud knew in the beginning that it was trauma. That's all therapy was in the beginning is what happened to you and how does this explain your neuroses. And now we have this idea like, oh, it's trauma these days. It was always trauma. I remember I asked my therapists, I'm sorry, I got off into a story, but I asked my therapist to add trauma to their bios. I said, you need to have one sentence about trauma, about how you look at or treat trauma in their bios. And one of my therapists wrote and said, what if I don't have training in trauma? And I said to her, what are you treating? If not trauma, I don't understand what you're treating if you're not treating trauma. So that was a little bit of a sidetrack. I apologize. That's just how my brain works. But you can find me in a lot of places. The podcast is a way to learn how to think differently. Like Socrates said, I can't teach anybody anything. I can just teach them how to think, right? Einstein said, you can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness in which that problem was created. So I'm trying to do what Joseph Campbell talks about, which is bring people to a different level of consciousness about things, that the hero isn't what we think of when we think of a hero. The hero is the person that's willing to look at themselves the person who's willing to go in, inward. And all the heroic journeys, no matter what they look like on the outside, it's the heroic task of saying, I might be responsible for the happiness in my life. I might have something to do with the cycles and the patterns that I've developed in my relationship. Yes, I married a narcissist and divorced them, but why did I marry a narcissist? That's the heroic question. Amazing. You can edit out my sidetrack if you want. Not to. at all. Not at all. Not at all. So now we've definitely taken up more than enough of your time, but we have a signature question for our guests before they go. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about life or self or shame or any of the things really that we've talked about today or that you've talked about in any of your books, what would you tell a younger Dr. Reedy? I'm going to cheat and say two things because the first thing I would say is I would listen. I don't think he needed more lectures, even from somebody that's wiser than his parents. I think he needed to be heard and listened. So I would say, I would approach him and I'd say, tell me what's going on, how you're doing. And I would listen and I would love him. And then maybe the one thing I would say is, you're doing okay. You'll figure this out. This is how it's done. 
You're fine. Thank you so much for being here today, Brad. I love this conversation so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.